morning, everyone. Um, how how are you? Um, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my name is Shanika Davis, and I am an Associate General Counsel with the UMass Memorial Health in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'll be serving as a moderator for today's panel, as well as participating in the end during my discussion on the FTC's proposed non-compete clause and its potential impact on the health industry. Before we begin, I would like to address a few housekeeping items. This webinar is being recorded, and by participating in this webinar, you are consenting to being recorded. The items presented today by myself and the panel of expert attorneys are not and should not be construed as legal advice or guidance, and we are acting and speaking on behalf of ourselves and not our individual employers. There will be a section at the end for questions, so as our panelists speak, please put any questions that you have in the Q&A or chat, and we will do our best to get to them at the end. All slides presented today will be made available following the webinar. So to begin, um, can each panelist um, provide a brief introduction of themselves, um, beginning with Amy? Sure. Hi, everyone. This is Amy Joseph. I am a partner with Hooper, Lundy & Bookman. We are a health law firm. I'm in our Boston office. We're a national firm representing healthcare providers and suppliers. Looking forward to speaking with you today. Hi, everybody. My name is Christian Krauchheimer. I'm Chief Compliance Officer and Associate General Counsel at Path AI. Path AI is based in the Fenway area, um, and we are a precision health uh, company specializing in the development of artificial intelligence algorithms in the pathology space. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Eva Yin. Um, I'm a partner in the FDA and healthcare regulatory group at Wilson Sansini, and I'm based in the Seattle office. Um, I have a PhD in biochemistry and a master of public health, um, and I work with companies in the life sciences and healthcare space um, on various corporate um, business transactions and provide FDA regulatory guidance on their pathway to market, uh, clinical development, um, and also help them to navigate uh, federal and state healthcare laws and um, uh, laws that um, reporting obligations apply to manufacturers. Thank you. So Eva, I'm, I'm gonna have you start the presentation. Great, thanks. Um, could you please advance um, to the next slide? So thank you everyone for your attention. Um, so I'll just dive into the first topic, um, which is uh, orphan drug exclusivity. Um, so for those who are in the pharma space, so orphan drug um, exclusivity provides a marketing, seven years of marketing exclusivity for drugs um, that are intended to treat a, a rare disease. Um, and what that means is that uh, there are fewer than 200,000 uh, individuals in the US. And if um, the number of patients are higher than that, then the company would have to demonstrate that um, there's no reasonable um, expectation to recoup the cost of developing that drug and bringing it to the market. So to incentivize development of drug products and to meet patient needs, FDA grants a seven-year market exclusivity for uh, manufacturers that uh, receive the first approval for an orphan uh, indication. So the longstanding position um, that FDA has applied 
uh, for this, uh, the orphan exclusivity is that it applies to the approved indication or use within the orphan disease. Um, and in 2021, uh, the court challenged that longstanding position and, um, and ordered FDA to set aside an approval for a second product. So in that case, the second product was approved for uh, treating the same disease in children. Um, and the first approved drug was uh, intended to treat adults uh, for the same disease. And that has created a lot of uncertainty for companies, um, you know, working in this space. And um, in 2023, in January, FDA issued um, a notice in the Federal Register to clarify and to reiterate that they will continue to apply the same longstanding position um, for the for the exclusivity to apply to the approved indication or use um, for the drug product. And what that means is that another manufacturer can seek approval um, for a different indication. Um, that said, FDA will obviously will comply with the catalyst order. So in that case, um, they will comply and set aside the approval. Um, but for a products outside of that case, they will continue to, um, to apply the, the, um, the longstanding position. Um, next slide, please. And also one thing to note is that even though FDA has provided more clarity, um, it's possible that uh, manufacturers may challenge that position in future litigation. Um, so, um, so that's something to keep in mind um, if you work in the orphan, um, orphan space. So another big topic um, in the drug um, and um, in the pharmaceutical industry is the uh, prescription drug provisions in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so it has multiple drug provisions here in the interest of time. I will only focus on two. So the first one um, is that the act authorizes the government to negotiate drug prices for certain high-priced single-source branded drugs covered under Medicare Part D or B. And the negotiated prices will not apply until 2026. And the, for the first two years of the programs, um, only Part D drugs uh, will be selected for negotiation. Um, and what that means is that um, if a drug is selected or what's called a negotiation eligible drug, um, then that manufacturer will need to negotiate with the government um, and they will be subject to a maximum fair price. Um, there are exceptions to, um, to the negotiation eligible drugs, um, and that includes um, small biotech drugs, new formulations, um, and also orphan designated drugs um, if the orphan drug um, only has approved orphan indications. Um, and also drugs um, with a generic or biosimilar on the market, um, among others. So um, I highlight this. Um, so the pharma industry is uh, very resistant. It's quite controversial against uh, um, the, the, this, um, the, the, this act. And uh, the pharma industry is um, working to, um, uh, to, to fight against the, the, the implementation of the drug negotiation provisions through rulemaking and also through litigation. So that's something to monitor. Um, if you're, um, you know, a, if you work in the Medicare uh, uh, prescription drug space um, and uh, if you're one of the among the high priced 
branded drugs. That's something to monitor going forward. Um, the other key um, provision is the impl uh, implementation of uh, inflation rebates for Medicare Part B and D drugs. And what that means is that for drugs where the prices um, increase faster than inflation adjusts the benchmark for, um, for, for, for the applicable quarter, they'll be subject to a quarterly uh, rebate. And again, this is another measure that the government is using to, um, to, um, to, to contain the cost of uh, dr drugs. Um, next slide, please. Um, so on this slide, um, just to highlight that FDA on the drug side has issued guidance on the use of uh, real-world data and real-world evidence um, and also have, uh, implemented um, advancing real-world evidence program. Um, these came out in the fall of 2022, um, but... Um, and, and the goal of, of these uh, measures is to really enhance clinical research, um, leveraging real-world data uh, to help with um, designing clinical trials and to improve the efficiency of regulatory decision-making. Um, I won't go into details, but um, the guidance goes over some of the considerations when using real-world data. Um, for example, um, given that it's, it's, come, it's from a variety of sources, um, it's one, one thing to keep in mind is that they may not be as reliable um, and there are limitations in terms of um, the use of that data compared to a controlled um, randomized clinical trial. Um, next slide, please. Um, another uh, hot topic um, is the um, guidance that released by FTC um, end of uh, December um, last year, and this updated the dietary supplement advertising guidance, which was issued in 98, uh, but it also expanded um, the scope to basically include all health-related product advertising. Um, so that includes food, over-the-counter drugs, devices, and uh, wellness uh, software apps. Um, sorry, could you please go back to the slide? Um, and, and basically, um, this guidance provides more uh, guidance um, and clarity around the clear and conspicuous standard, and also the standard um, for competent and reliable scientific evidence. Um, I highlight this guidance um, um, because it's an indication that the government, both the FTC um, from a gen general advertising perspective and also FDA for medical um, regulated products are increasing their scrutiny around um, the claims that the companies are making in advertising and promotional materials. So it's um, if you work in the space or in the advertising uh, area, I recommend looking at this guidance and uh, consider reevaluating the advertising um, and marketing materials that you have. Uh, to see if you need to, um, you know, increase the disclosures, or perhaps, um, you know, consider it, to consider whether more data is needed to substantiate the claims that you have under this new guidance. Uh, next slide, please. So the next few slides are forward-looking, and they highlight some of the um, new guidance or rules that um, that the FDA and also CMS um, uh, are planning to issue um, later this year. So the first one is direct-to-consumer um, prescription drug advertisements, and um, FDA plans to issue a final rule um, around um, 
the standard for um, for major statements um, in television and radio ads, um, and to provide more clarity around um, how to determine whether um, that that disclosure is presented in a clear, conspicuous, and neutral manner. Um, another big um, update is the modernization of biologics regulation. So a lot of the biologics regulation were drafted in um, in the 70s. Um, before the passage of the uh, Biologist Price uh, Competition and Innovation Act in 2009. Um, so this uh, proposed rule will provide high priority updates um, and provide more clarity and regulatory certainty for manufacturers um, in the space and will also help to prevent um, manufacturers from gaming the regulations um, to prevent or to delay um, competition from biosimilars and uh, interchangeable products. Next slide, please. So this slide um, just uh, provides a, some of, uh, a list of some of the guidance documents that uh, FDA's um, CDRH plans to publish later this year. Um, I know that Christian will go into more details about software and AI machine learning, but just wanted to highlight these that um, if you work in the device space, um, that this may be something you want to monitor going forward. Um, and also FDA does plan to issue updated transition plan guidance uh, for devices that fall under the the enforcement discretion um, under the public health emergency, um, as well as for EUA products. Um, next slide. And the last slide, um, just to highlight a, a very much anticipated, I guess, uh, rule um, from CMS. So th this um, relates to the transitional coverage for innovative technology or breakthrough devices. So the 2021 final rule provided um, national Medicare coverage for up to four years for certain FDA-designated breakthrough devices. Um, and, and that really sort of highlights the different data standards that FDA has for clearing and approving devices versus a CMS's data standard, um, because the CMS is more interested in you know, making sure that it's safe and that there's evidence to, you know, of an actual benefit to the um, Medicare patient population. Um, so for safety concerns and also um, other reasons, the government rescinded that, uh, that rule in uh, November 2021. And uh, in October last year, CMS published uh, an article in JAMA that basically sets forth um, four general principles, basically trying to balance um, and also recognizing the need for transitional coverage for breakthrough devices um, because, um, you know, to make it more affordable and accessible to patients, but also trying to address the need for additional clinical evidence, you know, um, to, to make sure that uh, Medicare patients do get a, um, can benefit from these novel technologies. Um, and it's anticipated that CMS um, will issue um, the, a rule or provide more clarity on transitional coverage uh, later this year. So that's something to, to look forward to if you're in this space. Um, so that concludes my slides. Thank you very much. And I'll hand it to the next speaker. Thanks, Eva. That was great. And um, I will certainly use some of those slides as a cheat sheet moving forward on some of the upcoming rules and guidance. It's certainly applicable to some of the work that we do. Um, my view is gonna be much more focused on um, an industry view, particularly within um, the diagnostic space. Um, so why don't we go to the next slide? 
So first, I want to level set us a little bit on some of the things I'm going to cover in terms of digital diagnostics um, and hot topics within, um, broadly speaking, the digital space. Um, one of those things, first of all, is kind of getting our terms down. And so th those of you who are less familiar with the overall um, regulatory framework for the way in which the FDA looks at in vitro diagnostics and laboratory developed tests, um, there's... Uh, uh, certainly a little bit of tension here because um, in some cases, these products look the same, um, but the FDA in um, limited cases with LDTs um, have basically said that they are exercising enforcement discretion to go after um, those entities, mostly labs, that are um, putting together these laboratory-developed tests. So for the IVD space, IVDs are things that are developed for sale to diagnostic laboratories, health clinics, or consumers. They're standardized through qualification procedures and training. They have to be pre-validated with data analysis and bioinformatics reports. Um, and that is certainly part and parcel to the overall approval process for medical devices at the FDA. In addition to that, they must be clinically validated. And of course, they're subject to FDA enforcement. Lab-developed tests, um, some uh, folks, and we'll talk about this a little bit later with the Valid Act, um, believe that LDTs are effectively a regulatory loophole that allows uh, the development of um, diagnostic products uh, to be done by individual laboratories and not by manufacturers subject to the FDA. Um, there's instrument qualification and training requirements that are established by the individual laboratories. They are developed in-house. Uh, they're developed, uh, at least uh, supposed to be developed, um, entirely within one specific facility um, and not taking an off-the-shelf product and simply making it its own uh, lab tasks. Uh, it does still have to be clinically verified and can be implemented quickly for emergency use. And like I mentioned, the FDA asserts enforcement discretion. And why don't we go to the next slide because we can talk a little bit about some of the differences there. Um, so, um, and actually I, I misordered the slides a little bit. So we'll get to that in a second. But um, wanted to speak a little bit about the end of a public health emergency and some of the effects on both the diagnostic manufacturers that are producing the IVDs and also the labs that are producing the LDTs. And I know that Amy's gonna talk a little bit more as well um, about the end of the public health emergency, which was announced, I believe, two weeks ago. Um, that's slated to end on May 11th. Um, as it relates to those um, assays, those diagnostic assays produced by manufacturers that have gone through the emergency use authorization process, as opposed to the standard um, FDA medical device um, uh, review process, either as a PMA or 510K. Um, in, I think, all cases, those emergency use authorized IVDs uh, for COVID are not directly affected by the end of the public health emergency because they were all individually authorized. But keep in mind that Health and Human Services can continue or can elect to revoke that status at any time. Um, and certainly manufacturers should not be under a presumption that any additional products related to COVID um, or anything that's not related to, you know, hopefully not any future upcoming pandemics um, will not necessarily be um, at the discretion of the EUA. 
Uh, FDA enforcement discretion policies related to the in vitro diagnostics remain in effect until further notice. Eva mentioned these. Um, these are in a lot of the digital health space. Um, FDA may, in fact, take additional action given that the uh, public health emergency is being lifted, but at this time they haven't indicated that as such. Um, additionally, there is an act called um, the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, otherwise known as PREP, which grants immunity from liability for manufacturers or providers of certain COVID-19 medical countermeasures. Um, similarly, this PREP Act is not affected by the end of the public health emergency, however, um, was authorized to sunset as part of the passage of the bill in October of 2024, or again, if the um, Health and Human Services elects to revoke it. And then Ava mentioned two other um, documents that um, FDA has produced. Um, I think that they produced them at the end of last year um, in uh, recognition that the public health emergency may end. And the first is the medical device transition plan for devices that will fall within enforcement policies issued during the public health emergency. And the other is the transition plan for devices issued um, during the coronavirus public health, for EUAs issued during the public health emergency. Um, if you have clients or are part of a company um, that has medical devices that have been authorized um, under the public health emergency or otherwise were approved during it, I highly recommend that you take a look at these transition plans to see if they will apply to your products. Um, in the case of the enforcement policies, uh, the first transition plan, there's a three-step process with um, benchmarks that happen at um, day zero, day 90, and day 180. Um, so you've got a little bit of time to fully comply with that, but please um, take a look at that to make sure that um, your organization, uh, if it needs to, is following the rules outlined in, in those. Um, I think that a take-home message here is that FDA is particularly interested now that the public health emergency is over, or I should say HHS broadly, in making sure that there are going to be very limited cases that um, device manufacturers continue to operate under some of the rules that were established during the public health emergency, unless they were otherwise authorized by statute or uh, a regulation that is not uh, subject to sunshine. Why don't we go to the next slide? And then the other side of that coin is um, the labs themselves. Um, so labs using um, IVDs that have that EUA status, as we mentioned, they're, they're okay for now because all of those IVDs were authorized under separate EUAs, but they may need to consider in the future appropriate or permissible to validate them as lab-determined tests. Again, just to watch that space to make sure that those products still continue to be authorized as IVDs under the individual emergency use authorizations for those particular products. Additionally, Health and Human Services has signaled an increased interest in the review of and enforcement of lab procedures following the public health emergency. Um, some of those areas of interest have focused on things like medical necessity of, um, of uh, respiratory panels that can review COVID, flu, and RSV um, through single use. Uh, that focus is particularly of interest when there's already been an authorized COVID test um, that's been paid for by the government. Um, and in addition to that, um, the uh, Office of the Inspector General at HHS have indicated in their um, various work plan documents uh, that they are going to also take interest in the enforcement of lab procedures and have actually created a report um, called Labs with Questionably High Billing for Additional Tests Alongside COVID-19 Tests that they warrant for further scrutiny. So certainly of interest there. 
labs that have their own in-house COVID tests, in other words, their LDTs, may want to review their internal procedures to ensure compliance on appropriate ordering now that the public health emergency is lifted. Um, that also includes ordering related to standing orders. Um, so labs that have had um, institutional contracts, um, particularly government contracts, that have had standing uh, lab orders or COVID tests are going to want to really look at that very closely. Um, generally speaking, standard orders are an area of higher scrutiny by um, CMS uh, because um, it's an area that is uh, particularly high for fraud and abuse issues. Um, and then last, labs are going to want to look at the remote testing facilities um, because, in fact, those facilities may no longer be um, permitted under CLIA-specific enforcement um, on um, where these uh, lab tests can take place. And we'll talk about CLIA again in a second. Next slide. So um, there have been a number of um, regulatory and legislative developments, uh, broadly speaking, what I'll call digital diagnostics, um, which uh, in some cases doesn't specifically uh, address digital diagnostics, but um, talks broadly about um, uh, products that may be digital products that may be subject to um, FDA oversight. Um, Ava talked about a few of these. Um, I just want to highlight three. Um, the first is that um, in September of last year, uh, the FDA did issue um, a new updated version of its clinical decision support software guidance. Uh, this is the guidance document that defines the types of software that are exempt from medical device regulations. And there's really a four-part test here. Um, the first is that um, the product itself is not intended to acquire, process, or analyze an image or signal from an in vitro device or a pattern or signal from a single acquisition system. Um, so this is really trying to hone in on the idea that information that may be directly related to a, a diagnosis, either for instance, radiology imagery or pathology imagery um, may probably not be part and parcel to um, the exemption outlined in this software guidance. And then there are three other parts, three other tests um, that the uh, software is intended for the purpose of displaying, analyzing, or printing medical information about a patient or other medical inf information, that it's intended for the purpose of providing or supporting recommendations um, to a healthcare professional about prevention, diagnosis, or treatment of a disease or condition, and that it's intended for the purpose of enabling such HCPs to independently review the basis of such recommendations. Um, so that the uh, intent uh, is that HCPs uh, um, don't primarily rely on any such recommendations to make the diagnosis. I think that this is a really key thing and it's a theme that we're seeing at the FDA um, and, and CMS that, um, Enforcement is more likely to happen the closer the product is to the patient because either um, the products are being directly marketed to patients or results are being directly returned to patients or there is direct reimbursement when a patient um, utilizes a particular product um, in addition to some other considerations um, around whether or not the result is going to be binary um, or if it is um, mediated by a medical professional. In those cases, um, when it's mediated by a medical professional, there's probably less likely a chance so long as it's clinically appropriate. Um, but again, as we start to get in the space of AI and the results of, of those kinds of outcomes, you're going to potentially see more and more enforcement um, because those, those outcomes are um, closer to the patient and, and more likely to actually lead to um, a clinical decision based upon the sole outcome of that product. Next page. Um, Last year, um, there was um, a heavy push by some for something called the Valid Act, 
um, which relates to um, the enforcement of uh, lab-developed tests, those LDTs I mentioned before. So currently the status quo, as I mentioned, is that the FDA exercises enforcement discretions on LDT. Um, there was a 2014 draft guidance and a 2017 discussion paper to enhance uh, suggesting that the FDA's enforcement of this, these areas should be enhanced. Um, it hasn't uh, gone into final form. Uh, and there's a relatively light in enforcement history by the FDA on LDTs. It tends to happen when there's a high potential for patient harm, um, including in certain kinds of prenatal and genetic tests. If the products are directly marketed to patients uh, or results return directly to those patients, those kinds of things that I mentioned earlier as well as evidence of poor clinical validity, poor clinical validity, I can't even talk, excuse me, poor evidence of clinical validity of an LDT, uh, you know, goes back to that competent and reliable evidence standard that Ava mentioned before in, in some way or another. So some had proposed this, this um, legislation called the Valid Act, which was to close that so-called regulatory loophole and give the FDA oversight of LDTs. It was introduced in several packages over the last few years, including in the omnibus legislation at the end of 2022, um, but it was cut out of the ultimate bill before the president signed it and never adopted. Um, but there's still a lot of attention being paid to the regulations of LDTs, particularly as we move to potentially more and more automated assays that could be marketed to patients. And as we continue to review, or as the FDA and other enforcement agencies continue to review the use of artificial intelligence or machine learning as part of an LDT, and again, looking at whether or not the result would be more automated and binary versus moderated by a medical professional and subject to um, um, medical oversight and guidance and professionalism. Next slide, please. And then the last slide in this particular section is around CLIA. So um, the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Amendments regulate diagnostic laboratories. Um, in, in fact, what CLIA basically does is make sure that labs, uh, for those of you that don't know, hit a certain standard um, when those labs are reviewing materials that are derived from the human body and related to diagnosis, prevention, or treatment of disease. Uh, research isn't necessarily subject to CLIA, even if it's done in a lab um, that has is receiving those items, but uh, that lab will be subject to CLIA if it is engaging in research um, and those results are patient-specific and returned uh, to a patient for one of those enumerated uh, purposes, diagnosis, prevention, or treatment. Over the public health emergency, um, uh, the um, uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that enforce uh, CLIA permitted enforcement discretion on what's called remote reading uh, for primary diagnosis. So pathologists and others conducting work under CLIA could do so offsite. They could do it at a home facility or other kind of remote facility and review pathology slides uh, or images on a digital viewer, which was um, certainly different than what had happened before the public health emergency. There's now a lot of momentum to try to have that continue, but absent changes, this is going to sunset on May 11th, and that um, is now concerning pathologists and academic researchers in particular who may be doing work at facilities that are um, you know, not necessarily CLIA facilities, um, but may not otherwise endanger the work that they do from a research integrity perspective. So encourage you or your clients to watch this space and, and make sure that from a CLIA perspective, um, you're doing things correctly once that um, enforcement discretion ends or otherwise changes based upon changes in regulation or legislation. Next slide, please. 
I'm going to actually very quickly just say that in the uh, artificial intelligence space, um, there are a lot of emergent challenges for companies, particularly that operate um, as labs uh, or otherwise provide um, diagnosis based upon biopsies or other kinds of specimens. And there's complexity here because um, there are different kinds of strategies happening in Europe versus the U.S. And that's important because when we're talking about um, artificial intelligence uh, and machine learning software, sometimes it can have a broad territorial reach. So uh, without going into significant detail on this slide, um, what I just suggest is that if you and your clients are developing particular software that has um, a machine learning aspect to it, which basically means that information is brought into a system and that system learns uh, about that information and can produce improved or different outcomes based upon that information to make sure that you're reviewing both the US and the EU guidances. Um, given that there is potentially a lot of reach that the EU can have into this space, there's this idea called the Brussels effect um, which is that um, rules that are made in Brussels where um, the EU government, most EU government bodies are based, can have really broad extraterritorial reach. And we're seeing this happen in the tech space um, where EU has been leading in this area in enforcement for now a number of years, and the US has been really catching up. The, EU, the US does have a number of um, items that are coming forth in this space. Some of them Ava touched upon and some others are listening here. So just really pay attention to this space moving forward. Next slide. So I'm just gonna summarize by saying that, you know, healthcare providers and clinical laboratories should really consider whether or not the use of new technologies are permitted under both existing frameworks like clinical decision support guidance um, and other frameworks um, that the uh, FDA and the EU are setting up uh, for things like uh, software products that are using machine learning or artificial intelligence. Additionally, clinical laboratories who want to use AI machine learning as part of their clinical workflows should really consider applications of FDA rules around things like research use only devices or investigational use only devices uh, and also LDTs when validating. It's a really complex area that the current framework is not really well situated to review and it's really fast moving space. So please make sure to keep up on it. Um, additionally, the FDA lab enforcement discretion is kind of a shifting target. So please make sure that you're paying attention and prioritizing, particularly if you're in-house uh, legal or compliance support uh, on those highest risks for your organization. And those are the areas, like I mentioned before, marketing to patients, returning results to patients, automation of results without a learned medical professional, um, particularly if you're in the diagnostic space and have any connection or payment to patients uh, themselves. And then last, digital diagnostic manufacturers need to consider if their products are subject to emerging rules in the US and the EU, regardless of country of origin because of the long reach of organizations um, like EU regulatory bodies. Thanks for your attention. I'll pass it over to Amy. All right, thanks all. So here's an overview of what I thought I might talk about today. So because the webinar is regulatory hot topics, you can see this is a bit of a hodgepodge. It's not perhaps as focused as Eva and Christian were, but I thought, you know, if I'm getting questions in areas or my colleagues are, then there are probably questions that others are also wrestling with. Um, with that said, I'm going to keep an eye on time and we may or may not talk about value-based arrangements um, when we get to it. So we can go ahead to the, the first slide. 
Right, so first telehealth, obviously a hot topic. It's been one for years. It continues to be one. It's been um, a source of continuing evolving rules. What I want to focus on here is Medicare reimbursement of telehealth. Um, so for those of you who you know, know, know more or less about this, you, you might know that Medicare historically did not reimburse for telehealth in most cases. It was very limited when you could get reimbursement. And one of the biggest limiting factors was the originating site. So that means where is the patient located? So for patients in rural areas in a hospital or a clinic, you know, the telehealth service could be reimbursed. But for someone sitting outside of Boston in their home, historically, that was not reimbursed by Medicare. That all changed with the public health emergency um, for obvious reasons when everyone kind of went home for, for a long period of time and for infection control and for various reasons. But over, over the past couple of years, it's really become part of a fabric of how care is delivered. And it's interesting if you look at data points about the adoption of telehealth, it's really skyrocketed. It's, I mean, the chart looks like March, 2020, it jumped up and it didn't really go down. Um, so under the public health emergency for Medicare, we, we had a lot of flexibilities here. The patients could be at home. You could get the services on the phone. It did not need to be a video visit. There was expansion on who could provide the services um, and Medicare would pay for it. So the public health emergency, as Christian mentioned, is ending May 11th and that is causing a lot of work for attorneys across all spaces of healthcare. Um, the good news here with telehealth is that even though the waivers that we have under the PHE are ending, we do have extension of most of these flexibilities through legislation. It was passed at the end of December. And so for most of these flexibilities for Medicare telehealth, we will get them at least until 2024 while CMS continues to study it. And I don't have a crystal ball, but I think this is such a part of the fabric of what we do that we can expect you know, longer term flexibilities. Um, can't hold me to it. I'm not Congress, right? But I think there's a reason that this is extended for two years because there's been such a demand and a value add. Um, so that is the good news on telehealth. I wanted to start with the best news and then we can go to the, the next slide. Okay, so we do have a number of continued challenges and uncertainty. I picked two of the topics which we hear about a lot. One is state licensure and one is prescribing controlled substances. So on the state licensure piece, um, as telehealth has grown and people have gotten used to using it, there's increased clinician interest in providing services to their patients, wherever those patients might be. And it could be as simple as the patient is on vacation in another state, or they go to school in another state, or they happen to live right across the border. Um, can that clinician provide the service? Other clinicians are just interested in expanding their footprint and providing access to their care across state lines. And consumers as well have this expectation of being able to access their doctors and everything else on their phone or, or their iPad. Um, but there's tension here with state laws because you have to look at every state law to figure out what the rules are. I mean, as a general conservative approach, in each state, the clinician needs to be licensed in the state where the patient is located. Beyond that, there really aren't shortcuts for clinicians who are looking to do this. It's a patchwork of state laws and there are limited exceptions and they're different everywhere. We do see exceptions in some states like for professional consults when it's provider to provider and a patient is in the room. There are some for episodic care, follow-up visits. We're seeing more and more states adopt telemedicine licenses or registrations, which are easier than the full license. But you have to look at each state to know what your clinicians to do can do. Um, we're seeing continued advocacy in this area, a real push for uniformity 
Um, but for now, that is the environment we are in. And it's something to be aware of. You know, if you are working in an organization, you are probably getting a lot of push to be able to provide telehealth across state lines. I want to be sensitive to time, so I won't get into all the different approaches that I've seen organizations take. There are a variety of approaches. It partly depends on risk tolerance, time, and resources. Um, but if there's time at the end or if anyone wants to talk to me after, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. This is a lot of what we are wrestling with along with our clients these days. Um, the other topic is prescribing of controlled substances. For those who this affects, it's a pretty big deal. So historically, under the Ryan Height Act, um, you could not prescribe controlled substances via telehealth without a prior in-person examination, unless some limited exceptions applied. This is another thing where we had a lot more flexibility during the public health emergency, because one of those exceptions was if you're in a public health emergency. So in the past couple of years, we've seen a lot more prescribing of controlled substances via telehealth without that in-person prior examination. In fact, we've seen a number of companies stand up in the past two years that weren't in existence before. And this is a part of the suite of the services that they provide. May 11th, that goes away. We do not have the same extension of flexibilities that we have for Medicare reimbursement. This is a big area of uncertainty. Um, I've heard that the DEA is working on rules. They might be at OMB, but we don't know what they're going to be. There, you know, there is a concept of special telemedicine registration in the act and the regulations, but we don't know what the scope will be, if that might be limited to certain types of services. We don't know. And so we are telling people, if you are doing this right now, you need to be very aware of this May 11th date, because it's very possible that you will need to do a significant pivot in how you deliver care until we have more guidance going forward. A big uncertain area for those who are impacted. It's a lot of talk happening right now about what to do in a couple months. Um, next slide. All right, and so I went from uncertainty to perhaps the bad news. <laughs> um, so this is, this is about scrutiny in the telehealth space. So it's not surprising as telehealth grows, you're going to have more money in telehealth, more reimbursement, and that's gonna to lead to more scrutiny. And I think the biggest item to be aware of if you have not seen it yet is the special fraud alert that OIG issued in July. It's a big deal. I don't wanna understate it because we don't get special fraud alerts every day. I mean, they're really just a handful. Um, and the special fraud alert seems to be premised on and based on a lot of enforcement activity we've seen with telefraud. You've probably seen the news alerts, all this telefraud takedown, um, which is really egregious conduct. It is not your everyday providing services via telehealth. It is, you know, folks with kickbacks and physicians who maybe didn't even talk to the patient and, you know, telemarketing schemes and late night TV ads, you know, targeting vulnerable patients. It's the whole works. That's not what most people are doing with telehealth. Nevertheless, it has raised attention on telehealth generally. And when you look at the special fraud alert, it potentially has broader applicability. It's, it's a short read and it lists, you know, a list of bullet points of suspect characteristics that the OIG has flagged for telemedicine companies. If you work with a telemedicine company, if you are helping set one up, if you work with an organization that partners with telemedicine companies to provide services, it is worth a read. Without getting into too much detail, there are some running themes, which we also heard from Eva and Christian. One is on marketing and advertising. How are you getting patients in the door? How is the company holding itself out? And the other is independent clinician decision-making, which Christian, I know you talked on as well. That, that's a big topic generally. Um, you, does this physician, can, can they do a follow-up with the patient if they want? Are they able to ask for more information if they didn't have enough? Are they limited to a predetermined 
care plan that they are allowed to offer versus um, flexibility. Um, so an important read in this space. And the other thing which I'll quickly note, um, it's a little more in the weeds, but OIG has been looking at telehealth over the course of the pandemic, looking at program integrity, looking at value add. There are a number of reports that are out there. One of them caught my eye. It came out last September and it was looking at claims, telehealth claims. And it looked at claims for about 750,000 providers. The vast majority, there were no issue. There were some where there was billing was identified as a high risk, 1,714. And of those 41 were clinicians who were associated with being with telehealth companies. Now, I'm not great at math. I tried to run the math. What percentage of that is 742,000? It's very, very low. Um, and it's interesting that it's such a low, I, I view it as a positive report when OIG looked at it. And yet they took time in that report to then talk about telehealth companies and recommend that CMS find ways to identify which providers are associated with telehealth companies moving forward. So it's another signal that, you know, even though I think in large part, telehealth is a really value add delivery of service. There, there is scrutiny on this looking for fraud and potential issues going forward. We go to the next slide. Okay, value-based arrangements. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about value-based arrangements because this is really, it's of a personal interest of mine. Um, but in the interest of time, I will just say quickly, this is not a hot topic in that it's new. About two years ago, we got new value-based arrangements, safe harbors, and exceptions. And these introduced a lot of flexibility that we typically do not have when we're structuring arrangements with referral sources. And there are a lot of conditions, right? It has to be for a value-based care where you're really looking to improve quality, um, to reduce payer costs. But it provides a lot of flexibility around remuneration, around fair market value, and promoting innovation for folks to work together. I'm not going to spend time on it now, but I will just say that um, there was slower interest in adopting, in my impression, than I was expecting because I was really excited about it. But in the past six months or so, I and colleagues have noticed a lot more interest. I think that folks, is get, they're getting used to the rules. They're more interested in finding ways to use them. I'm seeing more interest and I expect that to continue. So we can skip the next slide and go to the last one. Yeah, and this will be brief as well because I wanna caveat this that I'm not antitrust counsel. Um, if you ask any questions at the end, I will direct you to antitrust counsel, but this is such a hot topic. I think we would be remiss if we did not at least mention it. It is breaking news. So the DOJ within the past few weeks withdrew three longstanding healthcare antitrust policy statements. I mean, you can see the dates there, we're, we're talking decades. Um, and they address information sharing between providers. They have safety zones. Uh, it's a pretty big deal. It's getting a lot of attention. It was not replaced with new guidance, and it's part of a larger enforcement of uh, you know enforcement climate for antitrust and healthcare. And so, if you weren't aware of it, it's something to be aware of. If you are relying on these statements or dealing with these types of topics, I think it makes sense to talk with antitrust counsel. Um, if anyone else has anything to add on that, that would be great. Uh, I'll just add, Amy, that um, I think it just, to your point, shows a trend. Um, Jonathan Cantor, who's the associate um, uh, AG or assistant AG in charge of that division, has made a number of statements uh, in recent weeks about um, how the division is particularly interested in both provider side um, and payer side um, issues in antitrust. And so it just to me really 
uh, hammers home that this isn't just um, talk that that particular group is really looking at using the antitrust framework uh, that the United States has in a way that probably hasn't been there since the 90s. They've been doing it in tech space, and I think they're going to continue to do it in the in the healthcare space in, in upcoming months. And that's it for me. So I'm going. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about the FTC proposed non-compete clause rule. Um, while I'm doing that, I, I just want to alert the audience: do put any questions you have in your Q and A, um, because following this brief um, discussion, we will jump into answering some of your questions. So as a general overview, um, this proposed rule seeks to ban employers um, from entering into or attempting to enter into non-compete clauses with a worker, um, maintaining any non-compete clauses or representing to workers um, that they are subject to a non-compete when they can no longer be subject in any good faith basis. Um, this proposed rule it defines worker extremely broadly, including um, independent contractors, volunteers, um, of course, employees, and also possibly board members and, and interns. It also defines non-compete very broadly. It doesn't rely on what the clause says on its face, but rather how it functions. And so in the proposed rule, it mentions how some non-solicitation agreements may function as non-compete clauses um, and how some non-disclosure agreements may as well. They really look at whether or not there's any restriction on the worker from either working um, at a new company or starting a business after their employment with the employer is done. And again, like I said, this includes independent contractors. Um, it also requires employers, if, it's, if it goes into effect, to access, assess whether to implement replacements for existing non-compete clauses and draft those covenants, remove any non-compete clauses from employment contracts, and rescind non-compete clauses as well as provide notice to workers that the non-compete clauses have been rescinded and they're no longer in effect. So this notice includes current um, workers as well as former workers if you have their contact information. Um, the communication needs to be direct. It could be via email or text message. And you also have to provide notice of rescission 45 days prior uh, to the compliance date. Um, if you read uh, the below, it shows some of the relationships that are not included, um, such as franchise the franchisor, um, certain seller and business, uh, seller and buyer arrangements, as well as employers exempted from coverage under the FTC Act. So just some considerations. Uh, today, there was a three-hour uh, public forum that the FTC conducted on the proposed rule. Um, there were individuals there that were both in favor and against the rule, and a lot of people focused on asking the FTC to further restrict it to maybe higher income workers or to put more restrictions on it rather than a complete ban of 
of um, non-compete agreements. Uh, this proposed rule would preempt state law to the extent that the state law goes below um, the requirements. Uh, certain states like Massachusetts, we already have uh, non-compete um, rules regarding physicians, nurses, psychologists, lawyers, social workers, and individuals in the broadcasting industry. So those laws, uh, to the extent that they go beyond what this proposed rule um, would require, would still be in effect. It's, it's the floor, not the ceiling. Employers have until March 20th uh, to comment on the rule. Um, there has been some push for the FCC to expand that deadline. So far, they haven't done so. Um, and I, I wanted to move more into the potential impact that it could have on the health industry. Um, one of the exceptions to uh, this rule are entities that are not organized to carry on business for its own profit or that of its members. Um, so in Massachusetts, we do have quite a bit of nonprofit uh, health uh, providers and health uh, organizations. And so many have said that those nonprofits would not fall under the rule. I say many have said that it doesn't because there hasn't been clarity yet from the FTC if, it, if they will. Um, there are some opinions that they would still be included. Um, do any of the other panelists have thoughts on how it might impact the health industry? I think she got to say that, you know, we've within Path AI have been having a lot of conversations around the usefulness of continuing to have non-competes in our standard um, employment agreements or um, employee engagement letters, um, in part because it's been difficult to um, deal with a variety of different state rules um, when you have a very distributed workforce. Uh, it certainly cuts both ways in terms of talent. And I think in the health tech space in particular, um, you know, we wanna make sure to have access to the best talent possible. Um, and we've, I think, found largely speaking, unless there are a you know few unique individuals in the organization, it actually has a little bit more of a, uh, a burden and a chilling effect than we probably you know need it to have. And so we are you know, really looking um, eagerly to understand exactly if this FTC rule goes into place and, and how it may particularly help um, our organization sort of top down from our provider side to our um, to our health tech development side. And, and just based off of the forum today, I imagine there will be a lot of litigation around this. So I doubt that it, if it does go into effect, it will go into effect at, um, anytime in 2023. Possibly it will go into effect in 2024, but it, it, there, there will likely be a lot of litigation around this. So at this time, I'm gonna stop sharing the screen and, and just open it up for discussions. I know that we talked about a lot today, uh, but we wanted to discuss the broad range of the regulatory hot topics in the healthcare space. Um, so please do um, put some questions and the Q&A. So if we're waiting for questions, I had one or two that I'd love to just get the, the experience from you on. And one was for, for Eva, that's all right, because I will admit I, I was not tracking 
developments that closely for some of the things you talked about. And I had not realized there was new legislation which would allow negotiation of Medicare drug prices. And I don't know how much you can predict, but I'm curious, you know, how much of an impact do you think that will actually make on consumer costs? Yeah, that, that remains to be seen. And to be quite honest, um, um, you know, the, because the the manufacturers, right, they're, they want to push back. And there have been, you know, discussions of uh, strategy, for example, starting with a higher launch price so that, you know, downstream when they're subject to negotiation and they're capped at maximum price that, that at least they can recoup, you know, more upfront. So it, it's it's questionable how much savings it will pass to the consumers. Um but but yeah, I mean, but but on the other side, I do think that um, it's you know, price negotiation you know have been done in other countries, and that that's one way you know that the government is able to negotiate for you know a lower price and to try to keep the price down. Um, but I think in order to really do that effectively, the government will need to think thoughtfully about potential strategies that the industry may use to game the system. Um, so, but, but that remains to be seen. Yeah. It's a good question. Thanks. Uh, so for our panelists, while many individuals are gathering and, and worry related to the May, um, end of the public health emergency, in addition to what you've already spoke about, what are some sort of things that they should do now, um, to, make sure that they are prepared in May. I mean, I'll speak quickly. I think one thing which hopefully organizations have been doing all along, but if not, they should do it now, is do an inventory of what waivers they have been relying on and start to plan now because as we all know, May is going to feel like it's here tomorrow. <laughs> and these things have become really ingrained. It's going to take time to unwind and pivot. And I would just add to that point, Amy, if um, an organization has um, a particular in business interest in having one of the waivers still be in effect, um, you know, uh, dispassionately, now's the time to think about what advocacy efforts that you can make, whether it's contacting um, the agency uh, that had put the waiver in effect or otherwise your um, local representatives to really discuss the impacts and particularly the impacts on patient health. Um, that that may, you know, in effect, create. Um, making that case now is probably very important because it's going to be much harder to unwind once it's done. Well, I think we're at time. So uh, thank you to our panelists and, and thank you for everyone who joined. If you do have questions later on, do not hesitate to uh, reach out and, and ask them. Have a great afternoon, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah.